Today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verses 37 through 47. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So this is not a typical Advent passage, Christmas passage, you might say. But my hope is that uh, afterwards you will see it absolutely is a Christmas passage. Um, one of the uh, methodologies that you always consider when thinking about preaching through a season such as Advent is you can go topically based on those passages of scripture that speaks very specifically about the birth of Christ, or you can stay in series. And this year, we, we don't usually do this, but this year we thought, I thought, I think it's good to stay in series. Specifically because we're, we've been talking a lot about Jesus and who he is, and there is nothing better than to talk about Christ during this season of Advent. And in this passage today, we're in the middle of the story that we've been going over this conflict that Jesus is having with the Pharisees. The Pharisees have rejected Christ. They have been antagonistic towards him. And essentially, they want to kill him. And when we look at this passage, we see that Jesus shows us that there are actually two families that are represented here. There's the family of God, whom God is the father, and then there's the family of Satan. And so my hope, my prayer is that you would be a part of the family of God. We wholeheartedly believe the only means by which that is possible is to be bought and purchased by the blood of Christ. And by doing so, you become adopted into his family. That's the cost of being part of God's family, the blood of Christ, and that you become a son and daughter. So first we'll look at the family of Satan in verses 37 through 47. I want to focus on verse 44 because in it we see a number of different characteristics of what it looks like to be a member of the devil's family. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. 
He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. I could take uh, hours talking about this one verse and describe for you how the very characteristics of being a part of Satan's family is played out in our lives. But I'm, I'm only going to focus on two marks, two distinguishing marks of what it means to be a member of the devil's family. First is this person fulfills the will of Satan, the father's will, you might say. And here we see that Jesus is saying, if you are a child of the devil, the way that you know it is you fulfill his will. You want to honor him. And the way we do this most is actually by doing what Satan wants to do, which is to keep everyone apart from Christ. That's what he wants more than anything else. He doesn't want to kill you or deceive you. That's not his intended goal. His intended goal is to keep you from Jesus. And he wants to make sure that you tell no one else about it. As long as you don't follow Christ really with all your heart's devotion and you don't tell anyone else, he's actually pretty happy. He's pretty content. And by the way, you won't really see him because he's content in being in the shadows. And so Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4.4, this very reality, the God of this world, that's another phrase for Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That verse makes it so clear for us is that Satan desires to keep people from seeing Christ. It's what he longs for. 2 Corinthians 11.3, Paul says again, but I am afraid that as a serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Again, that's what Satan wants. He wants to do everything possible so that you don't have a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And he doesn't want anyone you know to have that sincere and pure devotion. And if you look at the Pharisees, that's exactly what they're like. They not only do not want to follow Christ, they don't want anyone else to do so. And that's why they keep on getting so angry because Jesus, as he's proclaiming the gospel, people are starting to follow him, starting to trust in him, starting to say, I'm going to give my life to you. And so they're doing everything possible to undermine that reality. If you read the book of Acts, Acts just is a story of the apostles and disciples and people just telling people about Jesus. And then many people slowly start following him. But what's interesting is that there are all these people who are going from town to town, wherever the disciples are preaching the gospel, they go from town to town, trying to rile up the crowd so that they actually turn away from Christ. That's the work of the enemy. And that's what his will is. That's his plan. That's his passion. That's his desire. And he will do whatever it takes to make sure that you do not follow him. Now, there are a number of different means by which he uses to keep you and me from following Christ. I'm going to just give two, but there are many. I'm just going to give two. One is distraction. Distraction. And may I say that I, I do believe that 
This is one of Satan's most successful schemes. In Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 9, Jesus tells the parable of the soils. One of the soils is actually a hard path. And Jesus says that the seed falls on the hard path and then the birds of the air, which, by the way, if you look at scripture, so often Satan is sort of categorized metaphorically as a bird, an attacking bird. And this bird of the air comes and plucks the seed right out off the path so that it never implants. When Jesus explains this soil in Mark chapter 4, verse 15, Jesus says, Satan immediately comes away and takes away the word which was sown in them. And to me, that's distraction, the distraction of the world. When you experience some conviction to follow Christ sometime in your life, alongside with that conviction is going to come the temptation to distraction, to think about something else, any type of spiritual awakening. If you've ever been on a retreat and suddenly you decide, I want to follow Jesus, you raise your hand. You go back to your regular life, and as soon as that happens, all sorts of distractions come your way. Uh, there's just this, if you make a commitment to follow the Lord, or maybe you recommit your, yourself to Christ, maybe after a sermon you say, wow, I, I, I feel so convicted to turn. As soon as you walk out those doors, and maybe not, maybe as you say this in your head, suddenly you think, well, actually, I have all these other things I have to do. And it slowly starts fading away. Paul warns us in 2 Thessalonians 2.9, the coming of the lawless one, Satan, is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. Now, this idea of false signs and wonders, it's not because the signs and wonders look fake. They're not cheesy representations you know, of God. They actually look very real. They look so convincing, so beautiful, so important that they look like something you should act upon. And Paul even describes Satan this way in 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen. Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. I have found that when people are convicted of sin, they can restore broken relationships, even marriages. I've seen it with my own eyes where a husband and wife who have been in bitter conflict and hatred, by God's convicting grace, will come to see that Christ truly is Lord and they can even submit their own will and desires, a will that was passionate about proving yourself and your own rights to suddenly being reconciled. I've seen it happen. I've seen that type of restoration happen. But I've also seen this is that when that restoration happens, alongside with that comes temptation. You know what the temptations are? It's not temptations to do evil things. It's temptations to focus on the good things, the successful things, the false miracles and signs and wonders. What I mean by that is when you turn your life to the Lord, and if let's say you're struggling in your marriage and suddenly you're convicted of sin, then what happens is that suddenly your kids become successful. Maybe they win an award. Maybe they've, they were riding the bench on the basketball team and suddenly they make it to the starting lineup. 
but they're just making it. And so you have to now as a dad, you're saying, well, I have to devote myself to making sure that he stays in that starting lineup. And so you're watching YouTube videos. You're Before you were saying, I need to spend time with the Lord. I'm, I'm so convicted to grow in my faith. But YouTube videos of the jump shot start taking hold of your heart. You're thinking to yourself, but this is for my child's good and success and prosperity. And doesn't God want my child to be the next Michael Jordan? He must want that. Then he can, after he wins the championship, praise God. So all the different justifications start flooding into our soul. The many blessings. We suddenly forget the rescue of the Savior. And instead, we focus on the blessings, the gifts, rather than the giver, the blesser. These blessings are from the Lord. Sometimes you get a promotion at work, and you get more money, more prestige, more position, more worth in what you're doing. But you also might get a lot more time away from home. Maybe you get a lot more distracted from your walk with the Lord. Maybe it's calling you away from the worship of God's people. Maybe you've committed yourself to a small group and said, I need this for my soul so that I could shepherd and lead my family well. But suddenly this really wonderful gift of a promotion, you say, I, I can't do it anymore. I, I can't do this. And is it any wonder then that that restored marriage slowly starts dissipating and back into the same old habits again? These things are not coincidences. Again, sometimes, I'm not saying always, so don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that, don't say Sam said, never take the promotion. Don't press your kid to succeed in a certain area. But here's what I'm saying is that sometimes, actually deciding not to take the promotion, not to have your kid be the starting point guard on the basketball team, is actually the means by which God is calling you to focus on him, to look to him, to trust him. There are many angels of light, many false signs and wonders. All of these, and it, it requires heart checks to say, sort of like a, you know, an F1 racetrack and there's the, the pit. And, you know, the guy says, all right, time to bring it in, you know, and your tires are, are going down. And so you have to sometimes, but if you say, no, no, I can do it, I can do it, I can keep on doing it, and suddenly the tires just totally, you know, burst out, you realize you lost the race, all because you felt like you can do it on your own. Those checkpoints are so critical to our faith, and we have to be aware, what is it in our hearts that is keeping us away from God. And so often, it's our own sinfulness, pride, and the love and thrill of success, both of ourselves and our children. So I can say, hey, if they succeed, that says a lot about me. But it's not just pride and my own sin. It's also an enemy. And this enemy is infernal, and he's really smart. And what he's doing is he's saying, you know what? This is really good for you and your family. You need to do this in order to be a better father and better mother. And they will love you for it, and so will the rest of everybody else. They'll applaud you. And is it any wonder that suddenly we've faded away from the Lord? C.S. Lewis 
wrote this really wonderful book called Screw Tape Letters. I'm sure some of you have read it. It's actually written from the perspective of a de demon, Screw Tape. And his enemy is God, the big E. So whenever he refers to enemy, it actually refers to God. And this is what this demon says. He says, I struck instantly at the part of the man which I had best under my control. So he's trying to convince this guy to turn away from God and suggested that it was just about time he had some lunch. The enemy, God, presumably made the counter suggestion. You know how one can never quite overhear what he says to them. That this, this being Christ, was more important than lunch. So the enemy, God, is saying, you know, you want to follow Christ. But this guy is saying, but lunch is so important. Lunch is. At least I think that must have been his line for when I said, quite in fact, too much important to tackle at the end of the morning. The patient, this person, this atheist, brightened up considerably. And by the time I had added, much better come back after lunch and go into it with a fresh mind. He was already halfway to the door. Once he was in the street, the battle was won. I showed him a newsboy shouting the midday paper or a telephone or a cell phone and a number 73 bus going past me. Before he reached the bottom of the steps, I had gotten into him an unalterable conviction that whatever odd ideas might come into a man's head when he was shut up alone with his books, such as the Bible, a healthy dose of real life by which he meant the bus and the newsboy was enough to show him that all that sort of thing just couldn't be true. Now, Satan's power to distract with lunch, a, an article of news, it's very strong. Very, very strong. I want to uh, point out to some of you, and you know this as you're aging, like I am, my brain is just forgetting so many things. I, I don't know if you've experienced that. Maybe I'm the only one, but I have a feeling more of you have experienced this, right? I want to help you with your memory. This is, how, this is the advice I want to give you. If you really want to improve your memory, start praying and reading the Bible. Now, you're probably thinking, oh, yeah, that's of course a pastor would say that. Read the Bible and pray. That's how you improve your memory. But here's the thing. It's not to say, God, please help me to improve my memory. It's, I don't know if you ever noticed, but whenever I read my Bible and pray, all the things that I had forgotten about my day suddenly floods in. I left the laundry. My keys, oh, I finally found it. Oh, I have to pay this bill. Oh, my kids need to do that. It just, all the memories start coming back right as soon as I open my Bible. So here, that's my strategy to you all. If you really want to improve your memory, open your Bible and pray. Why does that happen? That is not a coincidence. This is spiritual war. What does Satan want most? He wants to keep you from God. He wants you to go throughout the day without any insight into his heart, his will, God's will. And the way he will do that is to keep you from his word and to keep you away from conversing with him, having a relationship with him. And so all the things flood in. This distraction is terrible. It, for those of you who use uh, a phone Bible to list to read the 
ser- listening to sermon and you're, maybe you're taking notes or you're reading it on your phone. Right now, perhaps some of you are saying, oh, I just got an email about this. Oh, my fantasy football team, I just scored. You know, oh, I, my to-do list is, and it's all coming down. They're called notifications. <laughs> notifications are satanic. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm kidding. They're not. But notice when they come. Sometimes when you're most convicted about the Lord. I really want to recommend, if you're using your phone Bible, turn on your do not disturb. As soon as you enter into church, turn on your do not disturb. Because if you don't, you will get all sorts of very important notifications about the news, about sports, about your productivity. It just happens. I just don't think that's a coincidence. If you look at what scripture says, angel of light, false signs and wonders, these are all positive things. They're not bad or evil, but they keep us from trusting in God. Satan is actively at work through your successes at work and promotions, through the awards that your kids get, through a coach that says, you just need to get your son and daughter some more practice swings. Just devote yourself to learn, watch YouTube all day and try to analyze that swing, and whether it's a baseball swing, a golf swing, a volleyball swing, but just do everything possible. Go to every dance competition because your child is the next solid gold star. <laughs> sorry, sorry, I just dated myself, sorry. Um, <laughs> sorry about that. Um, that just sort of came in there. Um, the uh, tutoring sessions, it is remarkable how many distractions, good things, wonderful things, but schemes, schemes of the enemy. Next is ridicule. Not just distractions, but ridicule. When you turn to Christ, you will face ridicule. This isn't a modern thing. Jesus told us in John 16, 33, in this world, you will have trouble. When you decide to remain sexually pure before marriage, and you tell your non-Christian friends that you're not going to live together, or you've remained pure in that way, you'll be ridiculed. If you decide to work hard at a job when everyone else is slacking off and your hard work, because you want to honor God and you're working to the Lord, not to a boss or to a company, but unto Christ. But by you working hard, even when everyone else is slacking off, everyone's saying you're ruining it for the rest of us and get ready for ridicule. If you tell your neighbors that you follow Christ and because of that, they see you acting differently, living with integrity and in many areas that people do not. Ridicule comes. The religious freak idea comes. Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 12, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Satan and his family will always use ridicule. It's a powerful and oft-used tool by Satan himself because he knows we're afraid of it. We're deathly afraid of ridicule. 
So to be part of Satan's family is first, the first mark is we fulfill his will. Second, we imitate the father. If we look at verse 44, Jesus uses the word devil to describe Satan. The word devil is a translation of the Greek word diabolos. And that means one who separates, one who's a seducer. And everything Satan does is to separate you from God. Everything. He doesn't mind you being religious. He just doesn't want you to have sincere and pure devotion to follow Christ. And so his family members, they imitate their father. They separate and cause separation. And so families split apart because fathers and husbands don't lead. A father abandons his family. A divorce occurs. Churches divide. In our hearts, sometimes as we perhaps differ with different concepts within a church, maybe we have a conflict with one person, a few people. Suddenly it's, I want to leave. That heart to divide, it's so inherent within us. And yet at the same time, it's also egged on by another, by an infernal one. Two friends who separate over trivialities. Any type of violence, any anger, it's essentially a separation because you're pressing away somebody through physical harm or through your words to keep separate from another. Anytime you're distracted to, uh, from God or apathetic towards him, you know the devil's at work. It's inherent to who he is. His character is a separation character. He wants you to grow cold, to get lost, to grow stone-hearted. He wants you to think that something or someone else is better out there. Some plan is better. Some path is better. This is what Satan delights in. He wants to separate all of us from one another. And most of all, he wants us to be separate from the church, from God's people. He knows that if he can, like a, like a lion trying to look and see which buffalo is most separate from the herd, and it will be that which will be its victim. And so remember during COVID, when we were separate, my hope is that during that time, as odd as it was, also it's, it's not how it's supposed to be. That you're saying to yourself, I can't do this anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. I need to be with God's people. And if I'm not, I won't worship Christ in the end. And that's the danger of it all. We needed to come back from that time, not just because we like the programs or we needed my kids be taught by other people, more mentors, a youth program. We needed it for our own souls. Because I know for me that if I wasn't around you enough, I would turn away from the Lord. My heart would grow cold. Hebrews says in Hebrews 3, 12 through 13, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. If you look at what Hebrews is saying, he's saying, the writer is saying, if you're not with one another, exhorting one another on a regular basis, you grow hardened of heart because sin is so deceitful. Satan is so tricky. And we need one another. In verse 44, we're told, we're told that Satan is a murderer. 
When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And lies, they have real power. It is through the lie that Satan can get someone to perhaps say, you know what, they're made fun of in class at school all day long. And then they hear in their own brain, you know what, these, these kids, they're miserable. You need to do something about it. And so it's easy to pick up a gun, go into school and do something about it. When we hear of this maniac who goes and takes uh, six million Jews and essentially puts them into ovens and gas chambers, how does that happen? Because there's a lie that there's someone believed in, someone named Adolf Hitler. Lies lead you to addictions. It makes you think that the answer to your problems is in the bottom of an alcohol bottle or work or pornography, that you'll actually be loved and you'll be special and significant. Lies causes maybe a teenager to think, you know what, what I see on TikTok and Instagram and see these beautiful women and men, if I don't look like that, then I'm not going to be cherished. I'm not going to be special and significant. And so the lies of believing that all I need to do is to, just to eat a certain way or uh, have a certain beauty product or whatever it might be, only then will I be special. But that lie can destroy that person. And it so often does. This is a a schema, evil, evil scheme of the enemy. That's the power of the lie. The lie can steal, kill, and destroy. For those of you parents of young children, when your child does something wrong, you know, that, that has to be dealt with. But if they lie about it, be far more concerned about the lie than any act of disobedience. See, acts of disobedience usually are due to self-centeredness and the sinful heart. But the lie has both the self-centered heart and the enemy at work trying to instill within that child a heart of lies. And those lies undermine all relationship. You know that. If your spouse lies to you on a regular basis, you cannot trust that person in marriage and it will break apart your marriage. So you want to really make sure lies are not a part of your household because He's the father of lies, Satan is. And you know if you're hearing lies all the time in your own soul or in your loved ones, you know Satan is at work very clearly. So that's Satan's family, and it's a terrible family. It's one that leads to destruction and death forever. There's a different family. Jesus tells us in 39 to 43 that this family is not the way the Pharisees see it. The Pharisees said, Abraham is our father, in verse 39. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual morality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. 
came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. The problem with the Pharisees was that they believed their physical, genetic, biological relationship with Abraham is what made them to be children of God. But Jesus is telling us here that in chapter 8, it is possible to be biologically related to Abraham, but be a child of the devil, which is exactly what these Pharisees were. Why? Because they had the mark of the devil. They lied. They kept people away from Christ. And most of all, they hated and detested Christ himself. How do we know that we are a member of God's family? Because we believe in Christ. Just read the book of Romans and you'll see that all throughout. Romans 4.11 just hammers that in. But all of scripture points to that. If you want to know what it means to be a part of the family of God, you know that you are saved not because of any righteous things you've done, but because of the mercy bought by Christ at the cross. And you believe that to be true. It's literally the opposite of Satan and Adam and Eve and the Pharisees. All of them, they do not take his word. They do not bear his word. They themselves decided what was right. They didn't trust the word of God. They trusted themselves. And because they trusted themselves, they wanted to kill Christ. Their work of seeking to kill him proved very clearly whose family they were a part of. This season, we remember the coming of Jesus into the world to save sinners. If we consider the incarnation, meaning the word became flesh, Jesus became man. He dwelt amongst us. There's something that this incarnation and the crucifixion have in common. They both deal with separation. When I think about the incarnation, Take John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. I don't know how this works, but in some sense, there's a separation. In some way, God sending, it's, a, it's some little bit of separation, father to son, that there's a sacrifice being done. When we think of the sacrifice of God sending his son, it means that there's a distancing to some extent. Now, I don't know what that looks like. Only God himself knows but then you look at our Christmas story, you know, this nice story that we hear. It's a whole story of separations. It begins with God sending his son. Jesus' birth at where everything seems to go wrong. Mary, who is conceived, and yet she doesn't have a husband. She doesn't have a means by which that happened. It's miraculous. It's a virgin birth. And Joseph hears about it, and what does he want to do? He wants to separate himself from Mary. He wants to divorce her quietly because it was a scandal. She had obviously, it seems like, had had a sexual relationship with another man until he was visited in a dream by an angel saying, this is the work of the Spirit. And so that's separation. And then after that, Jesus is finally born, but you know, in the midst of the transition of going to the census, taking the census, going to Bethlehem, there's just all this turmoil. And so it's definitely not the perfect instance of Jesus being born in a manger, in a feeding trough. I think in a sense that's separation because the king of kings should not be born 
in an animal's feeding trough. It's not how it's supposed to work. And this crazed lunatic named Herod, he finds out he's so insecure that he wants to kill this king that is born in Bethlehem. And because he's not sure of who it is, he goes out and he kills all these baby boys. Talk about this constant splitting apart of lives, of brokenness. And think about all those parents who had lost their children because of a crazed king. And then Jesus' whole life, as we see here in John 8, it's constant separation. It's harassment. It's under attack. It's threatening, leading and culminating at the cross, the ultimate separation. What do we see at the cross? The Roman soldiers, they gamble for his clothes and they literally tear his clothes to split it so that they can decide who gets what. There's a tearing of his head from the crown of thorns. There's a tearing of his physical heart as the spear is sunk into his body and the skin is separated. There's a tearing of his hands and his feet as a separation of his sinews and tendons and muscles tearing it apart. Why all this separation? Because Satan did everything possible to separate us from God. And it would be God through the separation that he would endure for our sake. Because we were like sheep without a shepherd. He would join us together, bridge that chasm between us and God. This is what we celebrate this Christmas. All of this work to say, I don't want you to follow God. God decided I'm going to send my son. The veil was torn in two. Jesus cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This ultimate separation so that you and I could be part of the infinitely better family. At the cradle and the cross, Jesus would undo the power of Satan so that we would no longer be a member of Satan's family. But if we believe in Jesus Christ, and you can do that today, right now, you believe in the finished work of Christ on that cross, you can be a member of this wondrous family. That is what this season is about. That's Christmas joy. Let's pray together. Father, I do pray for those who have not come to see that you have sent your son for us so that we might have life. Pray that there will be a surrendering. Lord, in this world, there are so many goodbyes. There's the goodbyes of a family that has raised kids, adult kids, and they leave the home. There's goodbyes of friends and family who visit, it, visit for a while and then leave. There's the goodbyes of death that some of us are even facing right now of family and friends. This separation that has been such a part of us. But we're so thankful for the cradle and the cross that shows us that you have done everything so that we could be not separate, but united with you in Christ. And it cost everything for you to make that possible, Lord. When we come to this table, Lord, we do so remembering both this season 
of this cost. But we also remember the season of the cross and how much you loved us, not because of righteous things we've done, but because of your kindness, your mercy. So Lord, thank you, Father, for every good gift that you have provided, but most of all, the gift of your son, Jesus. And in his name we pray, amen.